episode of soul food i'm so excited to be talking to you guys i've always wanted to do a podcast but just never gotten around to it so here we are thank you so much for tuning in and today i have a very special episode about a topic near and dear to my heart food waste it is so easy to get discouraged by the scale of environmental and social justice issues that we are facing today but That being said, food waste is a great place to start since this is something that we all do and we don't really even think about it that much. During this episode, I will be talking about why our disconnection from the earth enables these wasteful habits that we have and how spiritual practices can help shift our perception from waste to resource. For this episode, I had the honor of interviewing food waste champion, land steward, and friend Michael Solzel, two spiritual leaders, Rabbi Alan Morris and Professor Norman Wurzba from Duke University, and Sheldon Levitt from the nonprofit Chi Cycle. Such an honor to interview all of these amazing humans who are making the world a better place. But before we hear from them, I wanted to provide some context for this issue and set the tone for some of those interviews by outlining how we have developed these wasteful behaviors and why we should care about it. So what is the deal with food waste and why do we have so freaking much of it? Well, friends, here in the U.S., 40% of all food is wasted at an estimated value of $161.6 billion. And we know that almost half of that waste is coming directly from our kitchens. Not only do we throw away hundreds of dollars in food each year, but additionally, our food ends up in landfills where the remainder of its energy is trapped and turned into methane, contributing to at least 10% of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. As urban places continue to grow and the demand for food rises, we as a collective society and culture are becoming increasingly disconnected from the resources which sustain our everyday lives. As consumers, we develop attitudes or tastes, if you will, that later influence what we're going to choose to recycle and take the time to store correctly, all of those things that minimize waste. Well, most people have some knowledge as to how to use up their leftovers, store food so it doesn't spoil, and even use waste as a resource to garden and grow more food. Most of us don't leading to almost half of the food and all of the energy that went into growing it, harvesting it, transporting it, and buying it being lost. Mostly because we have developed these wasteful impulses that stem from a lack of awareness of where our food comes from, what goes into it, and how it can be continuously used as a valuable resource rather than an easily disposable and replaceable commodity. Some of my wasteful impulses are throwing things away because of the printed expiration date, throwing food in the trash instead of taking the time to compost it, and of course not using my produce in a timely manner. 
I wanted to invite Food Waste Champion and good friend Michael Salzel, another UST student, to share a little about how he combats food waste in his house and how he has shifted his mentality from waste to resource. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining me. So when in your life did you start thinking about food waste? Yeah, so I think um, I grew up on a dairy farm and I grew up in a pretty big family. So we didn't have the luxury um, of wasting a lot of food because there was a lot of mouths to feed around the table. So it was both instilled that food waste was something that we just didn't do as a family um, from that side of things and working in agriculture and having a big connection to making food for people and having that be a part of day in and day out lifestyle. There's a certain inherent respect that you have for food because you are one of the people that work day in and out providing it for um, thousands of people, uh, whether that's through the Midwest or throughout the globe with our globalized food system. So I think it has always been something that was instilled in me from a practicality standpoint and from a financial standpoint. Um, But going to school at St. Thomas and studying environmental science, um, looking back, you can kind of put other additives to it as well. Like you can see the reduction in emissions that you're having from not having food go to a landfill and then decompose into methane gas there. Or you could talk about it um, from just like having enough of food to eat because if you're a college student and you don't have um, maybe as much funds as you would like to put towards highly perishable foods, it makes it more important to use all the food that you have. Um, and I think it's, it's just like kind of a personal challenge for me too. It's just kind of fun to like see what I can make out of – Uh, a half head of moldy lettuce or whatever it's going to be like it's kind of fun both to um see what it'll turn out in at the end and it's it's just like such a big satisfaction piece for me i feel like that kind of covers my other question too which was like what's the biggest motivator behind not leaving any food behind and i would totally agree with that it's like that clean plate satisfaction like knowing that you didn't waste anything i know for me when i waste uh, I don't know, some fruit or something like that. I just kick myself. It's like, okay, next time I go to the yeah. store, I'm going to punish myself and, and not get any more blueberries because I didn't finish the last ones I had. Yeah. So at a personal level, when you're thinking about trying to minimize your food waste, it's not just um, when it's already on your plate. While that is an important part of it, a lot of the fight against food waste happens um, at some key vantage points. Like at the grocery store, you said not buying blueberries if you didn't use them last time. So like kind of having a a mental sheet going about like, what can I use in a week and what can I use in two weeks and what can I use in three and kind of knowing your diet and your preferences. Like if I don't really like mangoes, I'm not going to buy mangoes that often unless I have a good reason to use them. Or if I really like potatoes and I know potatoes can last a while, I'm going to maybe buy those at a more frequent rate. So it's not just like, finishing your plate when it's there it's also buying foods that you know are going to last so and that just makes the most economic sense as well too like if you don't have that big of a budget like buying foods you know you're going to like and that you're going to use and that will make you feel good mm-hmm. is the most important thing for sure and a lot of the a lot of times those things also line up with not minimizing food waste so and then i know you've already kind of like touched on this a little bit but um my last question was what are some of the practices you have in your house i know you mentioned like cutting some of the 
some of the bad spots off of your vegetables, maybe ignoring that expiration date. Yeah. So I get most of my produce um, when it's already at the end of its life. So I work for a pretty cool nonprofit called Brightside Produce, which helps distribute produce to um, low-income and underserviced areas throughout the Twin Cities. And with that, there's some produce that goes bad on the shelves. And I take that and I cut around bad spots with mangoes, with um, potatoes, with onions, stuff that you can cut around with. Um, so already I'm utilizing produce that would be in the waste stream um, and cutting around it. And also something I do regularly is I check my roommate's um, food as well. I think that while they are also pretty conscious about not wasting food, they sometimes let like a zucchini in the back of the fridge slip and they won't notice it for a while. So I'm just kind of always have a mental tab on whose food is what. And if they have a head of broccoli that maybe is a little bit more yellow than they would like, asking them about it and using it because I know they won't. Um, and then also some things I just do in general, uh, like we already talked about, purchasing is a big part of it. So I don't purchase food that goes bad very quickly. Or if I do, something like mushrooms that can kind of get slimy pretty quick. I make sure that I've got a week ahead of me where I've got time to cook and I've got time to do all the prep work that it takes to make sure I'm eating things that make me feel good and that also help minimize my waste. So minimizing food waste is it's like a byproduct result of a lot of different things I do. Um, and those things are like eating food that makes me feel good and getting the most bang for my buck and supporting local things. Um, and all those things kind of culminate together to reduce the amount of food that I'm wasting, even if that isn't the main priority. Right. So there's a lot of intersecting benefits. I think during this time too, during the pandemic, it's, it's becoming really highlighted that the importance of just local food in general and not relying on those big supply chains and how that connection to with where your food is coming from like you said when you value the the food that makes you feel good etc like valuing the food that you know maybe the people who grew it or you know where it comes from also probably like helps you to value that food and not let it go to waste or if it does go to waste, yeah. use it as a resource and compost it rather than just letting it get disposed of. Yep, yeah. yeah, definitely. And like you commented on, with COVID, there's a lot of opportunities to support more local food growers to re increase our overall resiliency. Like you said, there's a lot of pretty stressed, centralized food distribution and stuff that maybe isn't on par with dealing with um, stuff that goes with COVID, like shutting borders, so you lose a lot of migrant workers, or just having workers in high-density living, um, stuff like that that really doesn't do well with the pandemic. So it, it provides an opportunity to support more local resilient farmers, and I think that's a great opportunity. And it's cool to see people doing it. Michael, it was so fun to chat with you. I have heard from your roommates that you do, in fact, check them on how much food they're wasting so good on you for doing that um i love that we talked about building resilient local food systems and how that is not only important in reducing our waste and attributing that sense of value to our food but 
also connecting that too with with the pandemic and um, the issue of food justice and the impact of our systems on vulnerable communities. So thank you, Michael. The more I learn about this concept of interconnectivity by digging my hands into the dirt or meeting a neighbor at the farmer's market, the more conscious I become not only of my daily habits and how they affect all of these other systems around me, but also just what's important to me and what I value at the end of the day. Food is one of those things that we all value and it just comes with so much more than the physical food that you see on your plate. It comes with memories and traditions and your culture and your ancestry, the labor, the transportation, the list goes on and on. One practice I've found that really helps me cultivate a deeper sense of value for my food, thus not waste it, is through the practice of gratitude before eating. I think this ritual is expressed perfectly by Pope Francis in his encyclical on climate change and inequality. He says, One expression of this attitude is when we stop and give thanks to God before and after meals. I ask all believers to return to this beautiful and meaningful custom. That moment of blessing, however brief, reminds us of our dependence on God for life. It strengthens our feeling of gratitude for the gifts of creation. It acknowledges those who, by their labors, provide us with these goods, and it reaffirms our solidarity with those in greatest need. I believe one of the major reasons that we have such a big problem with food waste is because we are viewing it as waste rather than a resource. I wanted to invite Norman Wurzba, author of Same Grace, Transforming People, Transforming the World, an article that emphasizes the importance of expressing gratitude for our food, to talk with me about why these rituals play such an important role in connecting us with our food source. Dr. Wurzba, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast. Hello there. Would you share a little bit about the role prayer or ritual plays for you in seeing your food as a valuable resource rather than just a disposable commodity? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I think one way to start is to say that saying grace is a more complicated effort than we might suppose. So, for instance, I grew up being taught at the dinner table you're supposed to say grace before a meal. And that usually becomes a formula that gets said, and there are lots of versions of these formulas. And those are all good things to do, but what you need to understand, I think, is that a ritual like that can be ritualistic only or just formulaic, and so it doesn't really make much uh, difference in the way people think. But if ritual becomes a way in which you're trying to focus your mind and your energy, then I think it takes on a, a deeper character because when you finish a blessing or saying grace, you say amen, and the word amen means let it be so. And so if you're looking at a plate of food and you say, this looks really good, I want to eat it, it's going to be great. But then you say, let it be so, you have to then ask, well, where did this food come from? How did it come to be on my plate at all? And that means you have to acknowledge all the different processes, all the forms of labor that had to happen so that you could actually sit down and enjoy this meal. So... You know, I don't remember in that article I mentioned that Shakers had this idea that before you say grace, you need to have two minutes of quiet. Just to calm your head down. Yeah. And 
And then also to start to think about what are all the processes that have intersected so that you can have a piece of apple pie or a pizza or any of those things that we love to eat. And, and I think that then becomes a measure of what genuine thoughtfulness is, right? So that rather than just being a formula, saying grace becomes something that opens your mind up to the world beyond the plate. And that's where I think the question of food waste comes in, because once you start to investigate the food system that we all inhabit by being shoppers and food, we then learn that, A, there's a lot that's hidden from our view. We just don't see the process that makes hamburger. We don't see the process that makes wheat or bread. And along all those lines of becoming, there's going to be all kinds of waste. So it starts on a farmer's field where farmers will leave a lot of really good produce on the field because it's not perfect, right? Consumers, they want to have a perfectly round tomato. Right. They want apples that have no blemishes. And so the farmer just knows they're not going to be purchased by consumers. So they just get left on the field. It's all perfectly edible. It's all nutritious. So that's the first level of waste. But then there's also a food distribution system where you know that the stuff that gets picked up on the farm goes to a center where it gets sorted and it gets put in cases that get put on trucks that then go to grocery stores or perhaps to another distribution center. And in that time, of course, a lot of the nutritional quality of the food has gone away. And a lot of the produce, which if you grow your own tomatoes, you know, if they're vine ripe, which is when they're most delicious and most nutritious, if you put that in a box for a week, it's going to rot. It's going to spoil. It's the same with bread. When you make your own bread, you know that mold grows on it really quickly. So you want to eat it fast. And so we've designed a food system where there's just going to be a lot of waste because of the distribution transportation issues. And so not surprisingly, a lot of food science today is about preservation. It's about making sure vegetables can sit on a truck for a really long time and it can sit on a store shelf for a really long time. But then there's, the, after you've gone through the waste that happens through distribution, there's the waste that happens in the grocery store, right? Because yeah. you put the vegetables out on display and you know, some of it gets picked up by a consumer, some of it doesn't. You know, you know all this stuff, so I don't need to reverse it. And of course, in your own home, right? right. You buy it, think you're going to eat it, and you don't. Right. <laughs> It's always the produce, too. It's always the produce. Yeah. But you know, the, the reason it's important to go through that long line from field all the way to the plate on your table is it just shows you how eating is a really complex act. It's, it's a political act. It's an agricultural act. It's an economic act. It's also a spiritual act. Right. And so all these things come together. And so suddenly you saying amen at the end of your formula takes on a whole different perspective right. because now you have to ask, should I really say, you know, God approves of this or, right. or let it be so. And sometimes you can say that with an honest, yes, you know, maybe, maybe you grew the tomatoes that are in the salsa that you're eating or something like that. And you say, yeah, this is just fabulous. Right. Uh, but sometimes it's not. And for a lot of people, I think the answer is it's not because they just don't know where the food comes from. Right. I love this quote from your um, from your article about growing your own food. Let me see if I can pull it up. We will even learn to grow some of our 
some food ourselves so that we can see, smell, touch, and taste firsthand the miraculous and fragile processes of birth, growth, death, decay, and rebirth going on all around us. And I love that. My whole journey studying environmental studies and geography and everything I'm doing was the result of going and working on this farm in Puerto Rico. And I, I mean, I tasted the salsa. I could go into the garden and pick something. Like, I would never let any of that stuff go to waste because it's delicious for one but also you just really understand on a deeper level how much value and how much energy goes into that it's, it's well, yeah, that two-way grew, street yeah i mean if you grew the stuff yourself you knew that you had to get out there in the hot sun and sweat and be mm-hmm. moaning about pests and bugs <laughs> and then if you made the salsa yourself it's also you know i i spent an afternoon of my own time to put this salsa together there's no way i'm gonna waste it right but if you just bought it at a store for 250 or whatever and yeah, it's not a big deal if it goes to waste right so involving yourself in the food that you eat means that you've invested your love which means the food reflects more love back to you mm-hmm. it's not just a commodity anymore that you try to get as cheaply as possible when you have made the food or grown the food your love has mixed with what I would call God's love in the world. And so those two loves now make that food item something much, much deeper, something that you, you're you much more likely to want to cherish and therefore not waste. Right. I think of that um, Catholic social teaching is, is a big part of this project too, and I really attribute this whole concept to care for creation and and just understanding the the complexities and interconnectivities of of everything and yeah. and just how important it is to honor our relationships too with with everyone who's producing the food, making the food, etc. Yeah. yeah, La Dato C is just fabulous. It's just a great, great, Love very encyclical. And if my listeners are unfamiliar, La Dato C is Pope Francis's encyclical on climate change, and inequality. I will link that in the description if you want to check it out. I highly recommend doing so. Thank you again to Dr. Wurzba. And on this same topic of food and traditions, um, I wanted to invite religious leader and teacher Rabbi Alan Morris to go a little bit more in depth about what these rituals or traditions encompass for other religions, Judaism in particular, and explore how unique practices align with not only food justice, but the theme of this podcast, which is really how can we change our perception of our food to really appreciate the value of it and thus not let it go to waste. With that being said, it is my honor to feature Rabbi Alan Morris, who has done extensive work on connecting the Jewish community to kosher food sources. Thanks for joining me. I was hoping you could share a little bit about ritual and tradition specific to Judaism and how your work has kind of related to this topic of seeing value in our food. Uh, years ago, I used to do a panel with uh, uh, myself as a rabbi, an imam, and a, and a minister, and we would talk about food justice in our traditions. And part of the part of the really interesting thing was that for both Judaism and Islam, there are dietary 
laws and restrictions. The, the Christian community in its early formation did away with the Jewish laws of, of keeping kosher as one of the universalist ways to uh, create their understanding of the world. But as a result, for both Jews and for Muslims then, there is a food has religious significance in a way that is not always evident uh, in the Christian community, although I think that there are many uh, people who are Christian who understand the sacred responsibility of the food that we eat uh, and who, you know, offer grace before a meal and are, are, are filled with gratitude for the food that is there. But in terms of the relationship between the kind of food we can eat and the religious identity we have, Christianity doesn't have dietary laws. Right. You know, uh, the closest might be that during Lent, people don't eat certain kinds of, of food, uh, give it up. Uh, but for me, um, I, I think that the, the issue that you raised about waste and about its impact in our life is, is critically important. Um, obviously, um, one of the great debates that takes place now is the amount of resources, natural resources that go into, you know, raising a cow, for example, uh, for meat consumption, uh, as opposed to what would be a plant-based diet. But equally true is if you talk to someone who cares deeply about pollinators in this world, they would tell you that uh, almond milk is just as bad uh, because what is happening is that there's a concentration of all almond production now basically in California at the expense of uh, the environment. And so food production is a religious issue. Uh, it's certainly an issue of how we understand our relationship to the world in which we're living. Um, what does it mean to be a guardian of the earth? Uh, what does it mean to uh, engage in behaviors that damage the earth but produce great amount of foods? Um, there's certainly a movement afoot, which I think is unfortunate and not correct, that the work that Norman Borlaug did, for example, on the on the really the, the green revolution and the food revolution uh, with wheat uh, should now be criticized because it may have been some sort of genetic modification uh, in the process. But, but the reality is, is that but for his work, uh, hundreds of thousands of people would have gone, would have starved. And uh, the development of countries would have been hindered as a result of not having access to local food sources. So it's a very complicated issue, Mary, and I, and I think you're on to something. Uh, I think that at the core, um, you know, from our biblical tradition, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a phrase that you should eat, you should be satisfied, and you should bless the Lord. Um, so that, that Deuteronomic phrase 
underscores the fact that there is a relationship between one's own satiation uh, and the food that one has and understanding the source from where it comes. I think the, the reflection that is necessary and that comes with offering some sort of prayer or mindfulness as one begins to eat is critically important to beginning to develop a relationship to the food that we are consuming in the world in which we're living. We might need rain from the heavens, but we need to be the ones who then benefit, take the benefit of that rain and produce the food that it, that it springs forth from the ground. The grain, the, the wheat, uh, the rye, whatever you make bread out of, uh, is ultimately uh, a result of a partnership. And when you, if you recite that blessing as a practice of mindfulness, you sort of grow up thinking that my partnership matters. So it not only matters from a ritual point of view, but like you said and what you're interested in, it matters from an ethical point of view also that we want to maintain a certain ethic about the manner by which we share in that partnership. We shouldn't be unethical partners. I love what you said there about having that partnership and honoring the two-way relationship we have to receive God's love, but also care for creation and stand in solidarity with those who are advocating for food justice. And I think that sums it up perfectly. I won't keep you. Thanks so much for coming on to chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for reaching out. So we have covered a lot of ground, probably enough ground to take us all the way from farm to table. We've talked about household practices and spiritual practices that bind us together. But I wanted to bring this topic back out of ways actually more like down under a ways and introduce Sheldon from Wellington, New Zealand to talk about Kai Cycle, which is a nonprofit doing really amazing work and making a huge difference. Hey, Sheldon, thanks for coming on. So could you tell us a little bit about Kai Cycle and what it is that you guys do? Sure. Um, so Kite Cycle is a, in a way, it's a, an experiment. It's also a living um, manifestation of an idea. Um, it's got a long history. Kite Cycle is now five years old, but um, what it is now is is kind of the end product of a merging of two different ideas. Um, and so, it was probably eight years ago that three women um, in a valley in so we're set in Wellington, New Zealand, um, uh, the capital city at the bottom of our of our North Island. And uh, a valley there called Ara Valley, three women were collecting food scraps from their community on their, like a little bag on the side of their bike and taking it to a um, kind of a, a radical social house um, called 128 and composting it in the backyard there. And... In 2015, 
three other women, a nutritionist, um, uh, a permaculturalist, um, and kind of a sustainability consultant all came together and looked at this patch of land in Newtown, which is right by the hospital, um, and said, can we grow nutrient-dense greens in the city to make smoothies? So it was, it was really looking at this idea that food had lost its nutrition through the industrial agriculture system. It had, we had lost any kind of connection with our food by the way that it was being produced and distributed. And those two projects, uh, so it was called Workerby Oasis was the farm, and Kai Cycle was the food waste. And in early 2016, um, they found themselves both on the same site in Newtown, and that's when I got involved and was heavily involved in the food waste. And so, and probably from 2017, we just merged the whole thing together, called it Kai Cycle. And so, um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, the indigenous people, the Maori, uh, their word for food is kai, and then cycle. So it's it's food cycle is how it, it would translate. Um, and so it's all about taking food the whole way. So we we grow food on the farm. We've got about a four hundred square meter farm that we distribute the food through a CSA, and then we collect about a hundred and fifty people's food waste from small business and residential and compost that on site um, and then that compost is used to rebuild the soil on the site uh, to then grow the food so it's just this relatively closed cycle of food um, and then we run various community events um, volunteer sessions education programs to kind of hold that all together and that's, yeah, that's basically what KaiCycle is. When did you start getting involved with KaiCycle? My, um, yeah, my my journey towards it was unexpected, I guess. I left school and went to university in Wellington, and I studied um, medicinal and pharmacological chemistry um, for many years, for four years became very disillusioned with that modality of, of healing and that, that way of providing medicine. Um, so I left university pretty disenfranchised um, with what I had just spent a lot of my life learning and um, yeah, decided, I, I can't quite remember how, but found myself kind of starting a garden at my new flat that I'd moved into and was getting into composting and trying to understand how it all worked and um, realized that it would be way better if I did it with others, that my little compost bin in my backyard was not really achieving much um, and would never really produce the compost that I had read about. And so I began writing, I'd I'd also taught myself programming and so I, I began writing some software, it was going to be called Compostable Spaces and it was to join the people around me to my compost or, um, or allow people to find a compost bin and we could all come together. And I was about halfway through building it and then someone said, you should go and, and talk to KaiCycle. And, um, and so I did and then they stole me. And um, 
I, I just found myself in that project at a time when it was really growing, um, was losing the original people that started it were beginning to, to find other journeys in their life. And so I found myself just fully in this project and was just enthralled really. And that coupled with the farm that was being built, I was just sucked in and um, I just never left really. And so the other project got left behind, but about, it must have been a year and a half, two years ago, someone in Auckland released some software called Shear Waste, which is the exact same idea. So um, both ideas, I guess, came to life, um, yeah, which was kind of an interesting outcome as well. Cool. I feel like that kind of transitions really well into my next question too, which was uh, about changing our behavior around food waste on a larger scale and I know in New Zealand I talked to people about things that I saw going on there and I'm like oh New Zealand's so ahead of the game in this blah 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 and their response is usually like yeah well like New Zealand's so small like it's easy for them to have like you know a zero waste store like in Raglan and to make that work etc um but yeah, I guess like, what is your opinion on like, I guess the app is a good way maybe to enact change on a larger scale and just making it easier for people to like see how their food can be more of a resource rather than just waste and something that we dispose of. Uh, I guess first, maybe I wouldn't say New Zealand is much further ahead than anyone else. Um, they there's a bit of a myth around New Zealand and our ecological sustainability. And uh, yeah, it's not quite what what has been marketed to the world, but it's saying that there is a growing um, consciousness in this country about sustainability. The certain industries in this country have caused a lot of damage and um, a lot of people are concerned about that and, and are beginning to voice concern and that's awakening something in us. And I think, I think that's the turning point when something culturally or spiritually moves us to change. And I think apps and businesses are tools, they're ways to, to, to do that thing. Like the app isn't going to change someone's behavior. But if they change their behavior, it's a really helpful thing to do it. Um, and so I don't know how you change people's know cultural or spiritual position on something but like I've seen it it's happened to me many times and so I think exposure is is the start it's you know you you might feel like you're bashing up against a brick wall but people seeing things as you said um, is is enough in some ways to realize that there's another way of doing it or that the dissonance that causes to our current behavior is enough to, to make us begin to change. Um, and these things take a long time um, to change on the scales that we're talking about, I guess. And then our, our bigger institutions getting behind it. At some point, councils and um, regular Tory bodies and governments change and and that's when the, the full-blown change occurs. And that takes a lot of individuals and small groups, um, yeah, just 
enacting it in their life and then advocating for it. And slowly, slowly these things move. I appreciate you taking the time and coming on. I look forward to keeping up with Kai Cycle and seeing what you guys are up to and just, yeah, spreading the, the food waste awareness. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Super cool to hear from them. If you guys want more information about Kai Cycle or want to follow what they're up to, I will put the link to their website and Instagram page in the description of this podcast. So, in this episode, we started by discussing why we have this issue with food waste and why we have developed such wasteful impulses, and that just the awareness of knowing not only where our food comes from, but how much energy goes into the process helps us attribute this sense of value to our food and therefore not waste it. I discussed with Michael how we can start to shift our practices at the household level and why supporting local farms and community-led gardens can not only reduce our carbon footprint, but get us to really start thinking about how valuable that food really is beyond just its nutritional value. Then we heard from two religious leaders, Dr. Norman Wurzba and Rabbi Alan Morris, about their rituals and traditions and how mindful eating and the practice of gratitude can really boost our consciousness of both food justice and what we're really doing when we're choosing to waste. Last but not least, we heard from Sheldon from Kai Cycle and what community and collective action can do to push this consciousness forwards and onto a larger scale. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope this episode illuminated both the issue of food waste and what we can be doing to make a difference. If you guys would like some more information about what we can do to reduce our food waste, visit the blog in the description and check out some of the organizations and apps in there as well. Bon appetit! <laughs> <laughs>